Thank you, Grant. There's uh, so much in that passage. It's uh, got so much to say to us, and I'm going to need to be selective and give a fairly big picture overview of the passage and just focus on a couple of verses within it. We've been exploring our series of God's mission plan as it's revealed in the narrative of Scripture, which I've uh, summarised as shalom, as peace in the sanctuary of God. And you would notice that the passage that we just had, we just heard, uh, landed in that space, talking about the making of peace, especially between Jew and Gentile, is front and centre in God's work. But I want to focus this morning more particularly on the, uh, where the response to receiving God's mercy and the grace of God, how our response to that, the fruits of mercy and grace, are no less part of God's mission plan and God's working of uh, salvation and indeed of creation. I'm going to start with a confession. As a a teenager and a um, somewhat um, naive but enthusiastic Christian, I did purchase one of those bumper stickers that you could get with the words, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I know what I meant by that. It's a very genuine statement. I didn't want to hold myself out there as some exemplar of perfection. I wanted to avoid any criticism that these Christians think themselves to be holier than thou. So I'm the first to say I'm not perfect. But the fact that I'm forgiven makes a difference. What we need to hear, and what I didn't get at the time, although I don't think I actually put it on the car, um, is that that actually to other ears can sound very different. I viewed it as an expression of humility, that I'm not holding myself out there. Others can view it as a somewhat um, superficial way of proceeding. If you go on the internet and do a Google search for responses to that slogan, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, there's quite a bit of pushback against it. And one in particular that struck my uh, my mind when I was uh, looking at this in the past week comes from a, a, a blog site called Miscellanea Agnostica. It's actually a former Christian believer who's moved to a state of um, agnosticism, just doesn't know. And we need to hear some of these comments. He's responding to what seems to be by the week, if not by the day, in uh, North America of a Christian leader who's had a, um, been caught out in some way and goes to a mea culpa um, and, and acknowledgement, I've done the wrong thing, I'm seeking God's forgiveness, I'm seeking the forgiveness of my family, and uh, was sort of saying, well, you know, but I'm holding on to the forgiveness that we have. And this is the response from someone hearing that. And, you know, it's a very public and dramatic way of expressing it in the States. This ridiculous screed, the response of this Christian politician, immediately reminded me of a common Christian slogan, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. How does he hear that? It's a convenient rationale for not having to accept the consequences of their own bad behaviour or their failure to live up to the standards that they believe their own Jesus taught. Can you hear that? It reminded me of a, um, a theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may have heard of him. Lived in the first uh, part of the 20th century in uh, Germany. 
as a pastor and a theologian, was one of the few to stand up against uh, National Socialism, against um, Hitler, and end up um, supporting the, the conspiracy to attempt to uh, kill Hitler as well. He lost his life just in the final weeks of the Second World War. A book he wrote, though, before the uh, Second World War is one that um, if I was having to choose half a dozen books and a bushfire was coming close, I had to make a quick selection. This would be on, in my hand pretty quickly. This is one that's really influenced me in a significant way. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, it was written at an earlier time. And uh, it, uh, let me just give you an introduction of what um, Bonhoeffer means by cheap grace. He uh, is counting against, he says, one of the great threats to the church of his day, and I think he's just seen ahead of times in a really prescient way. It speaks so much to the church today. What he means by cheap grace? means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is expressed as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she, the church, showers blessings uh, with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. He goes on on a couple of pages later. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Everyone wants the grace, but they also want to move on. So Bonhoeffer has this quote, it's the first line of his book, and I remember reading this chapter, and uh, it will stay with me. One of those ones that really uh, challenged and reshaped. Cheap grace, he then says, is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. Costly in the sense of counting the cost of discipleship and not taking it as an easy or as another theologian put it, hot tub option. You know, become a Christian and enjoy the hot tub experience. That is not discipleship, Bonhoeffer said. That in turn reminded me as I was preparing for this, the words in the good old prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, some would say the proper prayer book. Um, this is one of the areas where more modern version have watered down the strength of the language. In the uh, Book of Common Prayer, as uh, communicants were urged to prepare before coming forward to the Lord's table, urged these, in these words, you that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbours and intend to lead a new life. A bit later in the prayer of confession, said those with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him. What does that look like? Well, in the uh, times when the prayer book was first crafted by Cramner, communion wasn't a weekly experience. It was often done uh, with a monthly or even once a term. And an exhortation would be read 
to prepare people the week before, to say next week we're going to have communion and there's homework for you to do to ensure that you come worthily. It's not saying you have to be good enough, you have to be perfect, no. It's saying you need to come, we need to come in a spirit of true repentance. And as we weigh our lives and we hear God's commandments where we have wronged God, we need to confess that. That is what it is to do a right and worthy approach. But it also goes on if our sin is not just against God but against our neighbour. This is what the instruction said. If ye, if ye shall perceive your offences to be such as are not only against God but also against your neighbours, then ye shall reconcile yourselves unto them, being ready to make restitution and satisfaction according to the uttermost of your powers for all injuries and wrongs done by you to any other. And then you can come to communion next week. Pretty challenging, isn't it? We have an, a hint of that in our greeting of peace in the service. But that's actually where it comes from. God expects us to be asking those questions. Out, are we loving our neighbour as much as we're asking the questions around our respect and worship of God? So let's keep those in mind as we look at this incredibly rich passage from Ephesians. And I'm just going to be selective. The first part is a bit of an overview. As for you, as for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. In other words, we were on a pathway in life, making choices in life, which were a dead end. They were being destructive, they were being harmful. Not just should we seek to do the right thing, amend what we are doing, we also need to examine where is that coming from, what's driving us, why are we making those choices, those actions. And it talks about, well, we're craving the, sorry, gratifying the cravings of our human nature and following its desires and thoughts. So a lot of the prayer book, as we have received it, talks about the desires of the heart. That matters. What we love, what we seek, what we worship matters. Paul continues, but... And this is one of those great buts that is the game changer. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verses that we actually use in our service um, following our prayer of confession. The richness of God's grace means that we can stand and find that newness of life. Not only the forgiveness, but God raised us up with Christ. The new life that Christ experienced, we are drawn into and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that is expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Then we come to the, the heart of it. And this is one of those verses that sums it up so powerfully. For it is by grace that you have been saved. We come with empty hands. We bring nothing to God. To receive the gift from God, we need to come with open hands. Faith is in the first instance a reaching out and receiving that gift. 
God offers it, but asks us to reach and to receive it. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And for some, it's always as though the passage ends there. I've been forgiven. I have assurance I'm going to get to heaven. Things are right between me and God. Let's just continue on. But Paul does not stop there. And it's the next verse that I want to unpack a bit more carefully. Now, the rest of the passage, which I'm not going to touch on, which we heard as Grant read it, it lands in the space of reconciliation. It actually says what emerges out of this is a power and a capacity to bridge the barriers, to invite people into one community in Christ, into one body in Christ. doesn't matter what background or race you come from. There is a oneness in Christ. That is where Paul goes of it. I'm not going to go through in detail, but I will land there in a bit later on. But for now, I want to focus on this verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's focus on just what does that mean? Created in Christ to do good works. If someone calls you a do-gooder, do you take it as a compliment? Isn't it intriguing that I I've, 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 don't think I've ever heard that phrase, you're a do-gooder, in a positive way. It's a put-down. And maybe it is that we have domesticated, we've come up with a fairly tame sense of doing good works. I want to focus on what that might look like in our time, in our place. seems to me at times that the gospel that we... Uh, we talk about and how we communicate it and maybe how we live it out is um, much reduced. I've talked about that uh, previously, that I think we have a reductionist gospel. Today I'm going to put it in the form of transport. I reckon that some of the gospel versions of the gospel that I hear is like cycling on a unicycle. Has anyone actually done that successfully? I'm not even game to do it. It's a pretty uh, learned art form. And that uh, wouldn't be the way in which you want to most effectively go from A to B. Maybe we can have a two-wheeled gospel. Broaden it out. These are particularly comfortable versions of the two-wheeled gospel. I had fun looking for these examples on the internet last night. It could be a three-wheeler. In Nelson, actually, there was someone who owns a classic car just like this, a three-wheeler. I was in awe because I used to have a bubble car in my corgi collection as a child actually to see one. The trouble with three-wheelers, and this is a little bit more stable, but it could be like the car that Mr Bean had. And if you ever saw Mr Bean driving the three-wheeler, it didn't end happily. You know, almost in any corner you choose to turn, it would tip over. Uh, that was not a brilliant uh, notion <laughs> that was introduced. So what we should strive to by way of a gospel is a good, solid, four-wheeled version of the gospel now, I wasn't quite sure what to go with this one. Um, it did appeal to me because the wheels are on the road. There's a bit of, amount of grunt behind it. Quite a bit of a blokey culture as well. I don't know. But you can come up with your own version. But what we want by way of a gospel is a, is a four-wheeled, balanced gospel with power, with traction. So what might that look like? What might these wheels be that I'm using as a metaphor? 
Well, the first wheel is forgiveness. And that is actually at the heart of our ability to stand before God and to enter into a right relationship with God. Forgiveness is the divine miracle of grace. The cost to God was the cross of Christ. But Christ asks us to take up our cross as we seek to follow him. So forgiveness is what is we need to hear and it is so precious when we have made choices, we've done things that we know are wrong, there is no apology we can make to excuse it. And God, out of his grace, says, I can wipe that clean. Forgiven. But if that's the only wheel, then we're like that unicycle. Alongside forgiveness, the New Testament talks about the gospel in terms of new birth. Now, I know you can't read that text. That's okay, because it's going to come up later in our service as we come to our statement of faith. But new birth is being born again. It's actually a whole new sense of who we are is, is regenerated in that space and it continues to grow. So that is no less. That's the second wheel, I would suggest. A third wheel is the notion of transformation. The way we think about where we are, about ourselves, about our choices, about the pathways we should take in life, are transformed. Paul calls it as the being transformed by the renewal of our minds, not just at a cognitive level, but at a heart level. That thing, the ambitions, the, the sense of what it is good and right choices to make is a transformation. And the fourth wheel is one where the the rubber really hits the road in traction and one that deserves a lot more than a, a passing slide on our screen. But I do want to note it at this stage. It is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember one of the Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what does that look like? All, all these themes of uh, reconciliation, of healing, of uh, um, providing safety of redemption and especially the themes of restorative justice. Um, we have a little bit of that in our system, legal systems in Australia. Places like New Zealand and Canada and others do it in a much bigger, more intentional way. Restorative justice sits alongside uh, penal justice of retribution. A penal context for justice is someone is taken to court if they're found to be guilty of something, then that is named and a punishment is given and then they are sent out to serve whatever that punishment might be. And that is a, an important element. I'm not suggesting that needs to be replaced. But restorative justice, which actually came out of gospel traditions, said, but there's more to that. Those who have been harmed want to be heard in that space. So restorative justice, as it happens in New Zealand and elsewhere, those who have gone and stolen things or done harm or have uh, done graffiti or damaged something, are made to sit down with those that they have harmed and, in effect, look them in the face. And the notion is that those who have been harmed want to be heard. But what you did really hurt and it's caused grief, it's caused all sorts of difficulties for us. And you need to hear that. I'm told that many people who go to court 
in that bringing a grievance or a, uh, a claim of some saying, I want to be heard. I want there to be a learning in this so it doesn't happen again. Restorative justice is in that space. And the church and Christians have been at the forefront of advocating for it. Some examples of that even more powerfully. In South Africa, you'll be aware of Desmond Tutu's advocacy of, the, of truth and justice, truth and reconciliation. And it is not an easy process. There is a lot of listening to be done, to hear the angst, the experience, the pain, the, uh, the experience of abuse before the reconciliation can take place. That made a powerful difference. It wasn't perfect, but gee, it made a difference. That's also in that restorative justice space. And we need to ask ourselves, what does that look like in our own context as well? So let me just give some examples of what I've been reflecting on in, uh, over the past year or two in particular, reflecting on our wider society. First of all, the importance of reconciliation in our own environment. I've been part of a reconciliation action plan process and there is still work to be done. We are in the middle of the National Reconciliation Week. If you go to Burnside Library, they have quite a few resources and materials around it. The theme this year is Be Brave, Make Change. In the past week, leaders of about nine different faith traditions, including the Anglican Church as one of those faith traditions, was represented by Bishop Chris McLeod. Chris is the one who commissioned me here at St Matthew's. The National Aboriginal Bishop, a grungy man. And that's been a journey for Chris as well. They signed an undertaking to hear and to progress the uh, voice from the centre, the cry from Uluru that has been now around for about three or four years. And all the faith traditions saying, we are listening to this. And the voice is this important in that process. Not easy, but it is important. So that's one example where we might say this is what it is to do good, is to take these processes seriously. The other that struck me, um, before we get to that one, is that the thing that holds all these different elements, if you like, the engine, if you can drive the four wheels, I'm pushing the metaphor to its limit, I know, but the engine that drives them is the engine of repentance. Repentance that involves a willingness to see things differently and to make changes to our life, to change the direction that we're going in. For some, it might be a returning to home, a returning to a place where they have been running and fleeing from, like the prodigal son. Because the verse that continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are a work in progress. God hasn't finished with any of us yet. There's still work to be done. But he asks us to work with it, to welcome it, to seek it. So what might that look like? Do you hear the cry? It's a theme that comes out constantly in the Bible, certainly in the Psalms and elsewhere, as people cry out and ask, God, are you listening? God, do you hear? And we're told profoundly, God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, those who have been abused, those who have been dealt with harshly. 
God hears the cry. But it's no less for us. Do we hear the cries of those around us? What are some of the cries that we've heard in recent times in Australia? I know there's been a lot of reflection post the federal election around what do we read around behind the voices that were expressed through the votes. I'm struck by the actual cries that were there in the March for Justice. It happened in Adelaide, it happened in capital cities right around Australia, it happened in Canberra. A whole lot of catalysts for that. But there was a lot of pain, a lot of anger expressed and we could hold it at a distance. But we need to hear the cry. Of all the, the, uh, the banners that I was looking at last night, there's one that really struck me. Quite a few I probably couldn't show in church. But one that did really strike me. You're not listening. And I think that's true. Sometimes it's too hard. Sometimes we want to move on. But are we listening? Because that's part of the work that we need to do. This past week, um, I've been at a clergy conference for three or four days. And we had a number of presentations, one of which was by our um, survivor advocate in the diocese. The diocese is funding someone who listens and advocates for the experiences of those who have experienced abuse of various descriptions. It's a wonderful uh, uh, presentation, as well as the, uh, the woman who was um, speaking to it. Introduced a phrase I'd never heard before um, in response to questions. She described it as Davo. Anyone come across Davo? Sort of in the realm, perhaps, possibly with uh, social workers, but if not in um, some psychologists. Davo is a phrase that's been used to describe the pushback that those who have experienced a cry, who have been a whistleblower, who have said, look, I've been through this experience, and how the wider society, or some within the wider society, tends to push it back. The first they say in the D, that Davo is D-A-R-V-O, deny, attack, reverse the roles of victim and offender. Deny the behaviour might be just denying it never happened. In the church, it's more often being discounting. So where we've actually had uh, children and others bringing things, the things that happen, we've discounted. It's probably not as bad as you think it was. Probably wasn't what you thought of it was. We discount because we want to think the best of people. So we tend to minimise and say, it wasn't that bad, really. Let's just forgive and move on. That has actually come to our shame in the church because people have not been heard because they're young children. You know, and children make up stories. No, we should listen to those stories. And I've heard a number of them firsthand. And there are others who will actually express something incredibly vulnerable when people make accusations around assault and other things. And it happens in our wider media, in a dreadful way in social media, but also in the airwaves. People push back and saying, oh, yes, but it's more complicated than that. They brought it on themselves. They made a decision. They put themselves in a vulnerable position. You know, this is all about attacking the behaviour of the individual. <laughs> It happens. And then there's a reversal of the roles of victim as people saying, well, 
You know, they're just playing the victim in this space. But they're not the victim. We're the victim because you're making us feel bad. We have to do this stuff. And it wasn't me. Again, this is very real and alarmingly raw. And I'm sorry to touch on it in the context of our service, but I think it's important to do so. But afterwards, if you want to have a word or some prayer or some space, please do let me know. Because part of the doing good that we need to do is not leaping into action. It actually is stopping and listening. It is asking the question, what's your story? I've got time. Please trust me with your story. We should have been asking children who are experiencing abuse to tell us the story and to believe. There's a lot more of this in our church, I know, than we get to hear and experience. But to take time, to ask what's your story and to hear it and if we need to take some responsibility to own it and to to respond, not to push back. Great quote from someone called Ralph Hodgson. When I heard the quote, I would have thought it was a contemporary quote, but actually comes from a former time. He's a, a philosopher, I think, from North America. This is the quote. Some things have to be believed to be seen. Do you get that? Not has to be seen to be believed. Some things have to be believed to be seen. This quote came in the context of the church. We refused to believe those stories, so we didn't see them. Once we stop and hear them, and I have to say there's a significant number of stories of intimate partner abuse in the church today that are not being heard. This is what God wants us to be engaging in by way of responding. So how do we respond to this passage We receive and we thank God for the grace of God that out of his mercy offers forgiveness and reconciliation. But we need to sit with that call for God that we we receive this for a purpose, to be about the work of God, the mission of God, to have a hunger and thirst for these issues, concern for righteousness, to make a difference. Can we change the big picture? Probably not, though we can influence it. But can we change the culture of our own church, of our homes, of our neighbourhood? That makes a difference, even if it is just to one life that we sit down with and say, I believe you. Can I hear your story? May God in his grace give us such love and such eyes to see and ears to hear that we honour him by listening to others. In Jesus' name, amen.